This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture, with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Should architects date one another? How do you get your first client? What is the greatest challenge you've ever faced? All this and more on today's episode, as Andrew and I answer your burning questions, where almost nothing is off limits. Welcome to episode 67, Ask the Show. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm your host, Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we are taking it to the street, more accurately to Instagram, where I asked people to submit questions to Andrew and I that they felt they needed to know, needed. These are burning questions. This is a hot list. It's hot. So when we put the call out to people to answer questions, they were amazing. We got a lot of questions. So just like I did this just a couple of days ago, and we got about 60 questions submitted. I'll admit that not all of them are winners. Yeah, some of them even aren't on the, on the playing field. Yeah. Well, I was asked what color underwear I'm wearing. It's dark gray, in case you're the person that asked that question. There were some really interesting questions. Some were impossibly difficult, and we're not answering any impossibly difficult ones. Skip. We, we skipped, like when we talked about like the geopolitical nature of the universe and its impact on architecture moving forward into the third phase of, uh, it's like, we're not doing that one. And the other ones with, with quantum physics and how they figured in, we were like, mm, not, pass. I'm not going to put that one. But some of them were fun and some were just, they make sense. They seem like they're reasonable questions that if we were sitting in a bar having a beer and me and you being the sage old gentleman that we are with some young person saying, excuse me, Gramps. I have a question. How do I do this? They're those kind of questions. Yeah, for sure. So of the 60 questions we got, give or take, it wasn't an easy list to thin down, but we've got it down to a manageable few. And in our ongoing efforts to make the show less than an hour, you know, but close to an hour, but slightly less than an hour, we're just going to kind of keep an eye on the clock and see how far we get through this list. Okay. So here's the other thing that we did. I told everybody if you submitted questions to me, we would recognize your contribution to the show. So Sarah Johnson you submits a question. We're going to say, hey, this next question is by Sarah Johnson. And then I would put a link back to your Instagram account, which was the platform we used to harvest these questions in the first place. The only exception to that is if we answer one of your questions and you have a private account, I'm not going to link back to a private account because I think that's frustrating. <laughs> it's frustrating for me, at least. So. So if there's not a link back to your Instagram account, you'll know why. It's not that I'm a hateful person. I just, it's private. That just makes sense to me. So if your account's private, maybe you don't want a bunch of people. Yes. Hitting you up. So that's a much more gracious way to put it. (laughs) So we're going to respect your privacy. Yes, we are going to respect your privacy. All right. So let's get into it. We're just going to get right into it, right out of the gate. The first question, this comes from Jonathan McConnell whose Instagram handle is The Obsessed Architect. His question is, what are good strategies for securing your first client as a new, unknown, sole practitioner? And I was like, you know what? That's a good question. So we made it first. We're going to kind of alternate how we answer these. So in case Andrew and I have the same answer, it's not always me going first and sounds like Andrew's just agreeing with me. So (laughs) That's a good plan. I appreciate that. Yeah. So I'm going to take this first one. So I think there's two things that are good for getting work. 
if you're a new unknown soul practitioner. And both of them involve volunteering. And the first of those two ways is to volunteer at an architect intensive environment like the AIA, assuming that's available to you. I think this is a good strategy because it gives you an opportunity to show the other architects who are volunteering their time from different offices around your metropolitan area, just how amazing you are. Things like, do you follow through? What's your attention to detail? How do you communicate? What your organizational skills entail? Basically, your ability to do what you need to do. And it gives you a chance to meet a bunch of other architects so that when you combine these two things together, you can let people know that you are looking for work. And if they get something that comes in that either they don't want to do, they can't take on, or it's a bad fit, they can refer it on to you, the person who is amazing them with your detail organization communication skills. Right. Yeah. I can tell you that I refer projects to people like this constantly. So I know this is a good, viable strategy. Yeah. It's not necessarily to think about that they're giving you all the projects that they don't want because they're garbage. It's just not every architect has the right fit for a project. So, yeah. If it works or it could work, because I used to do that as well, because I didn't do any residential work. And so I would pass names along to people that called it for residential. You know, ironically, when I went over to Boca Powell, we didn't do residential work because they're like, well, it's not really a skill set that we have in the office. And so for about a year before I said, you know what, I can do this and I want to do it. And people are asking me to do it. I referred about four projects, like good projects. Now I'm like, God, I wish I had that project back. So I know this works. So the other volunteering way that I was going to get into was you're basically doing the exact same thing as you are in the first example, except it isn't in an architect enriched environment. Like it's important for you to build your network in a way that involves outside interests and individuals because eventually that's where the majority of your work is going to come from. Eventually, you'll be the person that's referring work that's a not a good fit or you know, you don't have the bandwidth to take on right now. That eventually will be you. But those projects come in like almost all projects for a long time, they come in because people know you and they want to work with you. So obviously to solve that problem, how do you get people to know you and get to know what you're capable of? It's volunteer. That's what it all is. That's my answer to Jonathan McConnell. I can agree with both of those things. And I think maybe to expand on that last one about the volunteering, to me, that's volunteering at some local organization and they're usually nonprofits. I think you could find some that might be the right fit for the clientele that you want to go after. The other thing I would say is that to me, the big question in the way that you approach it also depends what kind of work you want to do. I think that there are different strategies for going after residential work versus going after public work or commercial work. You can do the volunteer thing, but you're going to want to volunteer different things or you're going to want to join different organizations. If you have an economic development part of your city or committee, if you're interested in commercial work, that's where you would go as opposed to might not want to do that if you're trying to do residential work. And so I think that those kind of things factor into it. Yeah, I did think about that, but he said sole practitioner, which I'm thinking you're not doing municipal work as a sole practitioner, but I guess that's still a possibility. It depends on how big it is, but it's still a possibility. Yeah. Yeah. So. So the other thing that I think sometimes works is actually finding some of those nonprofits that might need some work. 
I'm not saying to give it away for free, but if you can get in and do a little work for a nonprofit, maybe at a reduced cost, or even if it is pro bono work, it's still something to work because that's the other thing. You've got to start to build up your portfolio of projects. You've got to be able to show that you have done work. Yeah. And so even no matter how small it is, if it's redesign their office interior or something, that's another route to go, but I wouldn't want to stick with it for too long because then you're not making money. Yeah. It's always like the second job is always easier than the first job and the third job's easier than the second job. Just kind of these things start to steamroll a little bit. I'll say when it comes to networking, like the one thing that I heard, maybe this is so obvious that it, I shouldn't say it. You know me, I'm going to say it anyway. When it comes to networking, you don't have to volunteer at a place where you think that's where your clients are because you don't just network to your clients. You're networking to everybody that that person knows. Like the number of times that I might get someone who calls me up that says, hey, I know this person and I need an architect. And they said that I should give you a call. That happens a lot. Yeah. So you don't have to say, I need to go volunteer at some place that's full of people that need single family residential projects. That's not what that means. Yeah. I mean, I would agree. I mean, it just, I mean, sometimes I think it helps, but. Sure. Being, being a good volunteer is actually more important, right? Don't volunteer and then flake out. <laughs> oh, that's the worst. That's that's you can't do that. Yeah. You can't if you yeah. if you go down That'll this path. You. Yeah, and you demonstrate to people that you're a flake and you won't follow through and you don't do the things you say you're going to do or you just step in it all the time. That's actually bad. That's you're better off not doing anything. Right? Tack up a th- exactly. piece of paper yeah, yeah. to a staple a thing to a telephone pole saying need an architect with little pull pieces on it. Yeah, right? exactly. So, yeah. okay. Let's go to question number dose. So this comes from longtime commenter, at least on my Instagram feed, Brian Bendham. And his Instagram handle is Bendham underscore design. His question is, is there room for bespoke craftsmanship in today's buildings or is it only for those with large budgets? I'm also going to take this one first because I know Brian. I have a digital relationship with them. So I thought I'm going to give that one to myself. So, so is there room for bespoke craftsmanship? I sure hope there is. But what I wonder is if this question really isn't about something else since it's almost framed as if bespoke craftsmanship is inherently expensive. And as a result, frequently a budget casualty. Brian's a woodworker. And he builds and designs custom pieces. So I would also imagine that this question is more pointedly referring to what he does, which is design and build kind of one-off pieces. I think, at least in how I envision work happening, is that there's always going to be room for bespoke craftsmanship because for the people that want those things, they're always going to want them. There's an opportunity for architects and designers to kind of make themselves aware of the artisans that are out there and the ones that are available. And then to let their ego being the architect's ego, let it get out of the way. We don't have to design everything and then retain these craftspeople to do what they do best. I saw a door that Brian designed once and it was very elaborate. It was very ornate and had a lot of moving parts to it. And he was heavily invested and he designed the whole thing. And then he built it for the people that that's the kind of statement piece that they want walking up to the front of their house. I would happily say, Look, it's a piece of art. And this guy does what you want. We should talk to this guy to do it. Regardless of the budget of my project, that door was not so cost prohibitive that I need to do some prince's 
house in order to retain him to do that door. I think that bespoke work, more specifically bespoke craftsmanship, you know, letting people who build things or make things, there's a room for that in every single project and in every single price point. You just got to find the right fit because the budget doesn't necessarily mean, hey, you build giant stuff, so build a cheap giant thing. Maybe just means, well, don't use the guy that builds giant stuff for this house that has a smaller budget. Go work with somebody who does something that does smaller work and therefore might cost less. You can still get some kind of custom bespoke piece in every project, regardless of budget. Me, I take this a little bit differently. When I think about it, I think about scale. And I think there is definitely room for smaller scale bespoke craftsmanship, but I think it gets more difficult at larger scale. I don't mean the project, but I mean the actual thing that's bespoke. Like if somebody wants an entire bespoke wall of some tile pixelated thing, to me, that's where the budget comes in. That can be a budget constraint issue, but if it's a like a one-off piece or if it's just some smaller area in the project, I think that there's always room to make those things happen in any project, as long as you as the designer have that intention or know ahead of time that that's something that needs to be done, right? You can make it happen. Yeah. Uh, you can make those allowances or I think it's just a matter of scale. To me, it's a matter of scale when it starts to impact budget, but I still think that there's room for it. You just have to, to me, know it in advance and realize that it's going to happen. Yeah. I think planning for it's important. Finding the opportunities where you could insert those moments is part of it. We're on to the next question. And this comes to us from, and I'm going to apologize now because I'm not going to get the name right. In fact, I messaged this person and said, could you phonetically tell me how to say your name? Because I can come up with like nine variations and none of them are unreasonable. So, (laughs) sorry, but here it comes. Next question comes from Sana Tabasum or Tabasum. Again, I'm so sorry. (laughs) This is a community Instagram account that's two.scale. And their question is, are there times when you feel fed up with architecture? And Andrew gets to take this one first. (laughs) (laughs) Is that because you know my answer after our conversation from yesterday? No. Well, no. The truth is, is, yeah, of course. We know everybody's answer to this question. Yes. I mean, that's a a resounding yes. (laughs) I think, oddly enough, I find maybe it happens more. The older I've gotten, but I don't know, maybe not. It, maybe it's more because things seem to change. Actually, I rarely get frustrated with architecture. I get frustrated with clients and or contractors and or, you know, those sorts of things. I rarely get frustrated with the act of creating architecture or doing design work. How about that? That's probably a better way to put it. Designing yeah. architecture rarely frustrates me. It's all the other components that are involved with it, which are, again, are 80% of what you do, probably. Sure. Sure. That's what gets frustrating. Yeah. But yeah, I think, I mean, I would say it happens at least maybe once a year where I'm like, oh, this is the worst thing ever. Why did I do this? But it fades. It just happens in moments. I think if I felt that way for a long time, then I would stop. I thought you were going to say it happens. There was a pause. You went, it happens at least once. I was like, a day. (laughs) And you said year. (laughs) So I don't know. Maybe we're in different bandwidths on this. But I was going to say, of course, I get fed up with architecture. And I think anyone who says otherwise is kidding themselves. At the very least, this is not an architecture thing. 
anybody who has a job can get fed up with it. Yeah. I've gone through this several times, like the idea of getting like just fed up. Let me just interject this little story. I used to work for a guy. He's still practicing. He's killing it. Always has good work. I have a lot of respect for him. Every now and then he gets, he would get super angry. But I saw him like on the third day when I first started working at this job, we went to a meeting and (laughs) I'm trying to think how I can clean it up, clean up the story. It's laced with so many (laughs) terrible things. The short version is we were meeting with this couple and we were talking about their kitchen. Dude, this was like my day two on the job. Day one was filling out forms and getting computer stuff set up. And yeah. So day two on the job, it's me and him in this house. And it's this husband and wife. They're older than both of us. He's 10 years older than me. And they're probably 10 or 15 years older than him. And they're talking about how they want to redo their kitchen. We're having these conversations. And my boss goes, we'll do X, Y, and Z. And she goes, we well, can't do that. And he's like, well, why not? Well, he sits there and, and I make the eggs here and then I turn and I put the eggs there and then he can look out the window and the guy, my boss time goes, you can't turn your head. And he moves his head like 0.0125 degrees. It's the teeniest of moves. And she's like, this was preposterous. Yeah. <laughs> and we, so we wrapped at the meeting, we got in the car, we drive like out of sight of the house and he punches the roof of the car, like inside and he goes. I'm too old for this shit. <laughs> and I was like, this is going great. That's awesome. But I will say that the times when I've reached the most, like the highest point of being fed up was almost always, the next step was almost always finding a new job. It had more to do with like, it's not a good fit. I'm not in the right place. I don't enjoy what I'm doing. There's like too many variables that mm-hmm. I feel are outside of my control. This was far more the case when I was younger. You used to make fun of me more often because it would come up. Like I changed jobs a lot when I was younger. And it's because I got bored and I was disinterested or I was like, I don't want to do this. And as soon as you kind of mentally check out of that stuff, I think little things can make you fed up with things. Yeah, really push your buttons. Yeah. I don't know, the last couple of years, I don't get fed up too often, but sure, I have days when I go, this sucks. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be doing this. This is garbage. Like, why are they even talking to me? And then you kind of take a step back and you go, all right, relax. And then you kind of put some perspective on it. And then you're right back to doing what it is that you like doing. So, you know, Amir, and Amir is one of these guys that he comments on just about every blog post eventually, if not Mm -hmm. right when it comes out. And we had one that came out like a week ago and had to do with sketching and blah, blah, blah. But He said something that resonated with me, and I think it's particularly appropriate for this question and the kind of the answers that we have. And it's don't compare your behind the scenes to someone else's highlight reel, right? It's the idea that everything has like amazing moments and has not amazing moments. Everything has that. And so, yes, of course, you get fed up with it. But the trick is how do you handle that and how do you move yourself or pivot away from the thing that's making you fed up. Yeah. What the point I was going to add is that as a firm owner, there were times where I would get pretty fed up with my employees and make me want to throw in the towel. <laughs> yeah, that's like a management sort of thing, not a again, not an architecture thing. Yeah. To the point of me like questioning my existence or my career or any of that stuff. That's a real rarity. Okay, let's jump on to the next question so we can try to get through more of these. 
even though our answers have been incredibly insightful so far. I'm giving ourselves, we're both gold medal answers so far. Sweet. Okay, so the next one comes from Caleb Schemmel, whose Instagram account is caleb.schemmel. And his question is, what's been the greatest challenge you've experienced across the blog or podcast? So I'm going to take this one first. It makes sense since I've been doing the blog for 12 years now. Sounds fair. So the greatest challenge I've experienced that I've had to contend with, there's been a lot, but he asked for the greatest challenge. So I was kind of like, challenges, challenges. Mm, what could that be? What could that be? And it was a really hard one, you know, because I've had my identity stolen. I've had the, the website hacked mercilessly for a year. I mean, it was just constant stress and, and then co- trying to come up with content. And, you know, I set deadlines for myself and I, I take the deadlines and the goals that I set for myself pretty seriously. But when I really try to say, what's the greatest challenge? I suppose it really comes down to the time it takes to create content and all that consists of, but with regularity. It's the idea that, like when I think about this, my daughter was three years old when I started the website, three years old, and she'll be a senior in high school next year. And I think in that entire stretch of times, I don't think I've had more than a handful of weekends where I didn't do some work that was associated with this blog site or with the podcast in 12 years. I can guarantee you it's never been two weekends in a row where I was just like, hey, I don't have anything to do with the blog. That's never, ever, ever been the case. Yeah. And then on those few chances when I did have like a weekend off, it's because I like busted it during the week to get like what I needed done early so that I could take that day off. So if I went on a vacation and we're going to be gone over a weekend, I don't travel without my laptop anymore. Even if it's not work-related, it's answering questions. It's like, what if the site goes down? What if there's a problem with XYZ? Like, I can't ever really get that far away from it. And I'm not presenting that like a gripe because everyone's very quick to point out that says, well, you can just take a break and we'll all be here when you get back, which I don't think that's necessarily true. But more so, I think that if I did walk away for a while, I honestly think there's a possibility I wouldn't come back. I would remember what it was like to not have this constant thing hanging over me. So just finding the time to do the work, that's it. That's the greatest challenge. Yeah. I can sum it up in saying content and consistency. Those are the biggest challenges. Yeah. Time for those things, but those are all related to time. I mean, time to have all to do all this stuff is just insane. Yeah. It's crazy. You're a stickler for your own deadlines and stuff. And so part of that you take on yourself. Of course. I don't disagree that if you left for a while, it wouldn't change. But you know that you feel like it would. And I think it's more about the fact that you feel like you might not come back. <laughs> There's definitely some, some truth to that. And the reason why I say that I think that the traffic and stuff would kind of die down. Here's the fear. So when I was riding more often, I had more traffic. And I have all kinds of empirical evidence to suggest when you write less often, there's less traffic. And things happen when you have more traffic, like your SEO returns are different. Your activity on the site gets measured different by search engines. And so there's zero chance in my brain. I know with absolute clarity and certainty that if I wrote less and I did less, everything would start to just kind of erode a little bit. And it wouldn't take that far for me to say, What's the point of this? I don't want to write this for 12 people. Yeah. That's kind of a big stickler for me. 
But yeah, but that's a large erosion for you. <laughs> uh, yeah, it would be a large erosion. There's some hyperbole to that, but there's a lot of hyperbole, not some. <laughs> well, look, I'll be the first to confess that I've been spoiled. Four years ago, I was getting ten thousand people a, a day through the website a day. Yeah, and now we're down to four thousand. 5,000 on the days we published, you know, 6,000 occasionally. Yeah. I sit there and I got to be careful because there are other people that I talk to that still have websites they maintain. And I'm like, God, what's the point? 4,000 people coming to the site a day? Like, I don't got time for that. Yeah. And, and we would be ecstatic if they were getting that much or half of that. Even. Yeah. They told me they go. No, I know. You, you are spoiled. I don't get 4,000 people in a year. And I was like, why are you doing this? I don't understand that. Yeah. So yes, absolutely. There's a different perspective of it for me. I might not ever come back. All right. Next question. This is an Andrew Hawkins answer first question. Oh, uh oh. So this comes from Alex Cathaloo. And I'm sorry, Alex, if I mispronounced your name. And his Instagram account is his name, Alex Cathaloo at Instagram.com. <laughs> That's not it at all. <laughs> so, here's, so here's Alex's question to us. In all the years of practice, what is the most difficult or challenging part of the profession? Oh, I mean, that's a tough one because to, to me, I think there's maybe two. There's like maybe like top two. But if, if I had to say the toughest part, and this was maybe for me, this is, it's a toughest part because of my personality, because I'm a, more of an introvert than I am an extrovert. Getting work has always been the toughest part of the profession procuring projects to do for me has always been the toughest part. Again, I think that's partly due to my, my own personality. I know that that's one of my weakest areas being the sort of rainmaker to bring in projects. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think other people are, are very good at that. Like, I mean, even you are, I think you've got a personality that is more attractive to people than mine, probably <laughs> at least in the beginning, at least in the beginning. I mean, I think pe once people get to know me, it's different, but like, this is the first time I've met you. I'm not going to be the most sociable person that you've ever met in your life. And by the time we're done, I'm not going to know all your kids and that kind of stuff. So, but that part for me has been probably the most difficult part. I never had real trouble with life work balance really, or any of those other kind of things. And I mean, I, I love doing the work, so that doesn't really bother me either. Managing a business is, would be the next, my number two, but I think that definitely would be procuring work. I think there are a lot of architects out there that would probably agree with your assessment. So I'll keep my answer short because I, I don't think it's that complicated. For me, it has to be finding some sort of balance between maintaining my attention and my enthusiasm as I vacillate between creative work, challenging work, and boring, unappealing work. I wrote a post about it. I had one of the guys that I respect here in town. He told me once, he goes, you're going to teach your vegetables. And the short version of the entire story is, and this was a long time ago, I've dealt with this since, but it was when you're working on something that you want to do, it's amazing. Everybody wants you on the team. When you're doing something you don't want to do, you're an anchor. Like everybody can tell that you don't want to do it. Nobody wants you because you- Yeah. So getting to that point to where you, as either my client or my coworker, can't tell the difference whether I like something or don't like it whether I find it interesting or boring, or if I find it challenging or monotonous. My everyday goal is to strive so you can't tell the difference in, my, in how I carry myself, the work I do, or anything else. That's my goal. I don't hit it all the time. I mean, I, I don't. 
but I try to. So, okay, next question. Next one. The next question comes from Jason Shannon. And his Instagram account is J underscore spy underscore arch. And Jason and I have actually corresponded many times over the years. And so I'm taking this one first. And it's kind of an interesting segue to the answer to the last question. So his question was, on average, how many jobs does an architect go after versus projects one? So I did some research on this particular question. And Andrew, I think when we talked about this before, I think you said you were going to do some research, but I don't know if you did or not. And while I found some interesting statistics on this, none of them were specific to architects and their project win rate. But let's start with what I did find. And this was particular to contractors and like, and had to do with when you bid work, how often when you bid it, do you win it? Mm -hmm. And so, and they have different kind of like, if it was public work versus private work, if it was design build work, they had all these different kind of categories. And Mm -hmm. they had just like straight up private work. I didn't look at public work because there's a lot of moving parts that go into whether or not you get a public work project. But for them, it ranged from maybe one in four to one in 35 was one of the respondents. This particular one I looked at, they pulled over 5,000 construction firms. And one of the guys responded like one out of every 35 projects he bids, he gets. That's a terrible win ratio. That's a bad percentage. Yeah. 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 So I looked at it and the range generally was around 16.5% to 25% of the time. That's their success rate. So less than 25% of the time, they get the projects that they were going after. If I bring that a little bit closer to my sphere and like maybe my own personal record, which I'll tell you right now, I don't actually keep track of it. But for about the last six or seven years, that was probably around 75%. First off, I don't chase work, so pretty much everyone who hires me has reached out to me. Now, they're frequently talking to someone else, so that doesn't necessarily mean I just show up, say hello, and they hand me the project. I still have to have a conversation, talk about my credentials, why would they want to work with me, all that kind of stuff. But I will say that having my website, having the Life of an Architect website, has certainly helped over that period of time because the most of the people who find me find me there in their own research. And there's enough content on that site that spans almost 12 years that people can get a pretty good feel for who I am as a person. You know, if I would be fun to work with and that I'm considerate and I'm honest. And for some people, that's kind of enough. That's what they're looking for. And so most people, when they hire architects, at least when they're doing residential work, it's either on someone says, you should hire that guy. They did my house and they did a good job. Or They go, I like you as a person. Let's collaborate. Let's work on this together. And we'll end up with a great product. That's kind of how it works in my world. So my win rate's pretty high. So that's my answer. Yeah. Mine's completely different. (laughs) I figured. Because I mean, I did do a lot of public work, almost solely public work. I mean, in that process, it's much different. Typically, and I've talked to other firms that did public work and I'm able to give you a fairly decent number, but it's surprisingly, it's in that same range that most people hope to get maybe 20 to 30%. So maybe maybe winning two or three out of 10 jobs that they go after. The other thing about that really is the jobs that you go after. Because you could screw that number up by going after jobs that you're not qualified for. Sure. Yeah. I think at one point in time earlier in my practice, I found this go, no go matrix thing that you start to 
decide and helps you choose whether or not you should go after a project. Those kind of things can help improve that percentage. But as a whole, I think most public work is is in that 20 to 30% range of success rates. Well, I know Jason primarily does residential work. Yeah. I think he's in upstate. I know he's in New York, but I think he might be in upstate New York. Maybe, you know, does a lot of work in the city kind of thing. He and I have talked before about it's hard. It's hard to find work. Yeah, it is. And honestly, if I didn't have the website and if I didn't have kind of the footprint that I have, like I know a lot of people now, like if you're young, it's one of the challenges that you have. If nobody knows who you are and you don't have a body of work that brings attention to yourself, it's a challenge. So obviously your win rate is going to be a little bit lower. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Next question comes from ec.xv. And I don't know their name and they didn't respond to my request to tell me their name. Their question was, what are some of the things you do to keep your desk organized? Essentially, how much clutter do you embrace? And you get to take this one first. I get to go first. I don't like clutter on my desk. I will allow it to a certain extent when things get really busy. Sometimes it gets to be that way, but at some point I'll have to stop and clean up my desk before I can start to continue to do work. Yeah. Too much clutter is a distraction for me. So, I mean, I may have a lot of stuff in my work area, but it's all very well organized. I'm a big proponent of everything has its place. And I've been that way for my entire life. Yeah. And I mean, I just sort of maintain that. So I like a clean work surface for sure. I don't know that I imply any principles or anything specific, but uh, you know, I'm not Marie Kondo methoding my desk or anything, but I definitely like a neat workspace. I don't like clutter. It drives me bananas. When I saw this question come in, I instantly thought that it could be a fun one to answer, although it might be hard to actually articulate like clutter in an audio format. <laughs> but I, I do think that like the size desk that a person has seems to contribute directly to the amount of clutter that they can handle mm, and true. therefore kind of they can disguise it. With the last three jobs that I've had, my desk size has shrunk considerably. Oh, like with each progression? like Yeah. My last office, when my name was on the door, I had, I don't know, about 18 feet worth of desk. And I had like, hey, this six feet is dedicated to paperwork. And this six feet is dedicated to computers and monitors and keyboards and mouse. And this six foot over here was dedicated to paper piles and notebooks and all kind of cataloging of information. But when I left, I left with like four boxes of stuff. And I was like, I got too much stuff up here. <laughs> of course, I thought I was going to be there forever. And I had like frames on the wall and all that kind of stuff. But I can't handle clutter either, even though I generate clutter constantly. So my desk kind of moves between the state of clean and cluttered every single week. So it starts off at some point of every single week. I clean everything up. I put everything where it's supposed to be. I've got a basket. Everything looks like, you know, it's ready to be Instagram. Mm -hmm. And then over the next two or three or four days, the wheels fly off. It just gets worse and worse until I get to the point to where my brain shuts down because I'm so distracted by the garbage. And by garbage, I don't literally mean like orange peels and coffee grounds. Oh I my just mean, gosh. Yes, no. I can't do that. And so I think it's part of the natural creative process, but if it's out of control, I have to clean my desk. And I will admit that I'm a piler. I embrace pilers. I'm going to say that's a word. So 
even if it's just stack all these papers up and put them in a pile until I deal with them later, it's better than having them, you know, tsunamied all over my desk. Right, as long as it's a neat pile, like I'm with that too, right? I mean, I'll make a nice pile and I'll put a binder clip on it so it stays nice and neat and tight. I'm to the point I'll try to organize that pile a little bit before I make a pile out of it, but I don't know that I could go a week. I don't know. I usually try to do that maybe every day or every once, every couple of days. I don't think I could make a week. Unless I was just swamped with deadlines and stuff, and then I would. Yeah. And then it was over. I'd spend a whole day. That would be it. Or half of a day, I'm like cleaning up my space. Yeah. My pattern now is every morning when I get to the office, I kind of- Tidy up a bit. Get things squared away. Enough to where I have my day planned out, what I need, and those kind of things. More times than not, the biggest contributor to the clutter on my desk is sketch paper and pens. Mm -hmm. I rip them. And they're different lengths. And like, so even if I put them in a pile, there's pages, they're sticking out in different directions. And so the other morning, actually, when I got to the office, I laid out the week's worth of sketches that I need to keep track of. And I took my scale and I ripped every single one of them so that the edges were nice and clean. Yeah. And I got rid of any extra length to the sketch paper that I didn't need so that I could stack them up, clip them and set them in a pile that's not going to start blowing around every time the air conditioner turns on. Yeah. Okay. We only have a couple more questions that I've earmarked for us to go through, and I think we're doing okay on time. So we have a couple of fun ones, I think, that kind of stuck towards the end. And I think the fun ones also reflect the length of answer. <laughs> so these probably won't be that long. So the next one comes in from Treasy. I don't know who this person's name is. I apologize. I didn't look it up. I mean, I, I did look it up. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't look it up. <laughs> I forgot. I ran out of time. I was doing this during my lunch break today to try to get organized. And I just ran out of time. So sorry, Treasy. But Treasy's question is, what are your office pet peeves? And Andrew's going first. And we know that messy, sloppy desk is on his list. <laughs> I was like, I think we just hit it, right? We just talked about it. Disorganization. Although, as a firm owner, one of my biggest pet peeves was headphones. If you want to really get to it, that was one of my number one rules was no headphones in the office. Mm. Unless you were really grinding down to it. But for the most part, it's no headphones because you need to listen to know what everything is going on. But then, yeah, messy disorganization. It's funny. I, you know, I wonder how things are different now because now half the people who are in the office are wearing headphones because that's how they're taking their calls and their yeah. Zoom meetings and like everything's just slightly different. different but. Yeah. Okay. So I kind of have two things and they're, they're not major, but first reheating fish or broccoli in the microwave has got to be at the top of my list. Like in the office? Yes. Yeah. And I don't really care for people reheating Indian food either. And I can tell you people everywhere are gasping as they think, I love Indian food. So let me clarify that this is more about pungent food, not delicious food. Because one, not everybody thinks the same food is delicious or even that food smells bad. But I'm telling you, I don't want to smell it across the office an hour after you've heated it up. I just don't want to do it. I like tuna fish, but I'm not going to stick some in the microwave for everyone else to enjoy for the rest of the day. Yeah. In my last office, we had a woman who, she was a vegetarian, and man, she spiced the holy bejeebers out of her food. And like when I first went there, there were like eight of us in like basically little more than a closet. Oh, yeah. Your old office? Your, yeah. Yes. That was a tiny office. Yeah. We had to have conversations like, you might need a second application of underarm deodorant. I mean, we were so tightly jammed yeah. in there. Yeah. And she would heat up the most, I mean, pungent food ever. 
And we're like, that really, that's so strong smelling. And she would just go, ha, 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 ha. And I was like, I'm not making a joke. It smells terrible. Yeah. But I'm a jerk because I will tell you that your food smells terrible. Burnt popcorn. Burnt microwave popcorn. Oh, it's terrible. So the other thing that's on my list is I also think people should clean up their shit when they're done making their mess. And yes, I will bleep that word out. I just don't like when people like your mom doesn't work here. I mean, I'm turning into the <laughs> into my, you know, into some old fogey. You are a cogity old man these days. I'm just telling you, like, for instance, I went to the office today and this is just what I do. I made myself a tea and we have these little creamers. And I was like, I like two creams in my tea. And I noticed that the creamer thing was a little low. So what do I do? I filled it back up. And then I saw that the other flavors of creamer, they were running low too. So I filled them all up because that's just the kind of guy that I am. There are people who will take like the last one and they'll just like, peace out. It's not my job. I'm not down with that. Yeah. And I'm not down with you leaving your trash sitting out for someone else to deal with. Just, just handle up on your business. That's all I want. Mm -hmm. Whatever you do, you cradle to grave it. That's what I want. The mess. Yeah. So. You leave it like it was when you showed up. Yeah. Yeah. Or better than even. Yeah. Which is what I do. Better. More cream. I would advocate that as well. <laughs> better than. <laughs> yeah. So other than those things, I don't really have a lot of pet peeves, but I will also say that I'm probably like me personally, Bob is a pet peeve of a number of people because I talk a lot. And when I talk, I tend to hold court a little bit. And it shuts everybody down. Not no one's complaining. Like they all love hearing the stories, but I became more conscious of that when I was the one writing people's paychecks. And I realized that when I stopped to talk about leprechauns for a while, I'm shutting twelve hundred dollars an hour worth of billable rate down. Right. While I tell this story, better yeah, be a good yeah. one. Better be a good one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so the next question comes from Arcalto, and their question is. What new things or activities did you discover during quarantine that you might not have otherwise? And I'm going to take that one first because I have a very short answer because I didn't learn anything other than I'm capable of drinking an entire bottle of wine by myself in a single evening. <laughs> That's what I learned. I, well, honestly, I didn't learn anything else. <laughs> I knew that about myself already. So that's not an issue. Yeah. I didn't learn anything else. I worked a lot. I didn't do anything. And when I decided to take a break, apparently my break was, I'm going to drink this bottle of wine. Like the whole thing. That was, I learned that about myself. So I would say your new thing was that you learned that you could work even more hours during the day when you didn't have to commute. But that, that is true. For me, it's, I learned I could bake, picked up on some baking a little bit. Mm -hmm. So that was really it. Very domestic. Yeah. Well, I mean, stuck in the house. So. Although at one point in time, it was almost impossible to find flour. And that was like really when I was knee deep in my baking mode at that point, And that made me really angry. <laughs> so I, I started some baking and eating the carbohydrates. Nice. That's solid. That's a solid plan. I think I remember you posting some pictures about uh, making banana chocolate bread. Yeah. You know, or something. Banana chocolate chip bread. Hell yeah. yeah. And it was like two loaves. And I talked to you like, I don't know, two hours after you posted the picture and you're like, it's gone. We ate it all. It's like there's no more left. Yeah. I know my kids, one of my daughters is really, it's, I mean, I make a loaf and it's gone in hours. She just mows through it. That's funny. She doesn't even slice it into slices. She just picks the whole <laughs> loaf up and eats it. No. Like a giant bread apple. That's what it is. 
<laughs> okay, here we go. This is going to be the last, last question. Last one, yep. Because we, we got something else we got to do. So the last question comes from wow.danny. And they ask, do you think architects should date slash marry other architects? I'm going to go first on this one. I started to think, I'm not really sure it matters to me. And I'm 100% certain that my opinion in this doesn't matter. But I decided to include this question anyway, because I find it interesting that so many architects date other architects. I literally know dozens of instances where architects are married to one another. I used to think it was because we all work all the time. And so our dating pool was limited to the people like in the room. <laughs> you know, that's how you found <laughs> your yeah. partner was that person right there because that's who you got to know or who you ever saw. But how many doctors date and marry other doctors? I mean, I know it happens, but it ain't like architects. I do a work for a lot of doctors and their spouses tend to not be other doctors. Yeah. Rarely is it they're actually married to another doctor. It happens. I mean, my sister's boyfriend, he was married. He's a doctor. He was married to another doctor. But I don't understand it. I think that would be, I hate to say this because people who are married, I go, y'all are crazy. Because I go, what if you have like differing opinions? Like every now and then I can try to pull out the, don't you know what I do for a living to my <laughs> wife? It's dangerous territory. Let me tell you, that's dangerous. I'm thin ice if yeah. you pull that out. But I think when you've got two people that come to the table and they both have like opinions and if they don't agree, I don't know what happens. Cage match. Yeah. I don't know. Date, I would say is acceptable. Mary, I would say it's very questionable. <laughs> Mainly because I can't, I can't imagine trying to decorate or buy the furniture in my house with another architect unless we were exactly on the same wavelength, which I don't know that I've ever met another architect that is like 100%. And so- it just makes me think it's impossible. Yeah, but maybe that makes it even better because I used to have arguments with my wife about couches. And I was like, I, I don't want dust ruffles. I want the couch to be sitting on legs off the floor. And I talked to other architects. They're like, yeah, do they even make those couches anymore? <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, I know. Or I don't want rounded arms on the couch. It needs to be a square arm. So maybe there's all that kind of low-hanging fruit that makes your life a lot easier. Yeah, maybe. And actually, one of my favorite people on the planet is Danielle Anderson, who I work with. Her husband's an architect. And their house is groovy and she doesn't ever make it sound like they don't have differing opinions. Yeah. You know, like they find a way to concede and acquiesce in ways that people who love each other should do, yeah. <laughs> you know? Maybe I'll change my tune a tad and say that it's okay, but I don't think I could ever do it in work at the same place. I think that would be, oh, that would be like the nail in the forehead, not even the coffin, right? Like if you worked at the same place or... I know a few married couples that are like partners, like the business partners. And I can't yeah. imagine. I can't imagine yeah. that at all. Yeah. Well, I wish good luck to those people. Me too. You know? You're a stronger person than I. <laughs> One or both of you, you're much of a better person than I am. You know what? They might be listening to this answer and going, y'all are idiots because this is so much easier. This is easy because we have the same kind of thought process. We might come to different answers, but like my wife and I, she thinks very linear. I, can, I never win an argument with her ever. <laughs> right? Because mine is all over the place and hers is like straight to the, I never win. And I go, yeah. maybe if it's two architects, it's different. I don't know. I might be afraid it was two architects. You'd never get anything done. <laughs> You'd sit there and talk about it forever. Yeah, maybe. You'd never buy a couch. But you're in it together. And True. I think that's that's the thing, right? They're maybe. both in it together. 
So if you submit a question and we didn't answer it, there's two possibilities. One, it was awesome, but we knew we wouldn't have time to get to it. So we're going to move it to the fall episode of Ask the Show. Or we just didn't like your question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was either too hard or it wasn't good. I don't know. It's 1A and 2A and B, right? So I probably put another call out because sometimes, you know, we either get like super intense, hard questions and I go, some of those are okay, but we want to balance. We want to ask the, should two architects marry? I want to have that conversation. Yeah. And I think, you know, some of it sometimes too, is it the question is not that they're not good, but it would take us 20 minutes for that question. Yeah. They're so in depth that it's too hard for us to it's too that. intense. It's intense. Sometimes we might take those and make them show ideas, but you never know. Yeah, we're not not giving you credit <laughs> if, that, if that happens. Okay, so on that, we're going to bring this episode of Ask the Show to a close, sort of. We still have this episode's Would You Rather question. And Would you rather? Yeah. We're not bailing on the hypothetical questions, but we are going to string a few of these shorter Would You Rather questions along for just a bit. We're kind of trying them out. We're kind of on a test run. So here is this week's Would You Rather. So here we go. Did you know? Did you see the either the the question in the show notes? I mean, yeah, I'm looking at it. All right. So here we go. Here's the official Would You Rather question. Would you rather have all traffic lights you approach be green or never have to stand in line again? This is so there's only one answer for this that is correct. Uh-oh. There's absolutely. Now I'm a little concerned, but okay. Do you want to, you tell me your answer. I'll, I'll, That's fine. I'll go first. I'll tell, yeah, you, yeah. I'll tell you if you're wrong. Minus to never have to stand in line again. That is the correct answer. Standing in line is the worst. Oh my God. It's the worst. No. It's... Yeah. Forget it. Most of the time when I stand in line, I'm the last person. You know, as long as there's people behind you, you can feel sort of decent yes. about being in line. But if you're the last person in line, it's pits. It's the worst. I know. There are a few things that will set me off more than like I get in a long line and it doesn't continue to get longer behind me. Oh yeah. Right. So if I am like that last person, I look and I go, I could have walked up here like 30 minutes later and I'd be at the same position. I could (laughs) have. Yeah. It literally puts me in a terrible mood. Yeah. You don't like it when they don't move either. I've been around some of those where you're like, we're not moving. This is dark. I I know that person that'll step out of line and like look up like, like what's happening? Did somebody fall down up there and no one's, everyone's afraid to step over the body. You're like, let's get it moving. Yeah. Lines. I hate them. Yeah. Yeah. Hate them. I mean, I think for me, it being in the car, like there's enough distractions when I'm in the car. I mean, I could be listening to the radio or these days if I stop, maybe I'll jack with my phone for a second if I'm stopped at a light, if it's going to be long, but there's distraction. I'm in the air conditioning. I'm sitting down, you know, all those sorts of things. It's not overly tiresome or tedious to me as much as standing in line. Well, somebody could, and it could be me, I might about to make this point right now. Sitting in a red line is a form of standing in line, right? Yes. And I hate it. I mean, I was about to say, ooh, this is a tough one. But when I really thought about it, as much as I don't like, and it's not so much, I don't like the line at the red light. It's the person in front of me that's not paying attention. The light changes and they don't go. And so you get like this, this kind of. It's 15 seconds before they move and you're like, what are you doing? Yeah. And it's 15 seconds yeah. between like the first car and the second car and the third car and the fourth car. And the fifth car is like, didn't make the light because no one's paying attention. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That does set me off. Part of the reason I get to the office early is because there's less people on the road that I have to deal with because it'll put me in a bad mood. But I don't always 
It's not guaranteed to put me in a bad mood. Standing in line, uh, guaranteed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can't stand. For me, it's just like standing in line. It's just, it's much more tedious and it feels so much worse. Yeah. And mainly it's because to me, the time you spend in a red light, even if you're, you sit through two or three of them, if I was standing in line for that long, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. Like standing in line is like long. When I think of, I've got to stand in line. There's not four people in front of me. There's like 40, right? Yeah. So no, if I could skip that all the time. Yeah. Easy, easy choice. Yeah. Even if there's two people in line and I get to cut. Oh my God. (laughs) I I love that. Yeah. There's the question. Is it that automatically... No matter where you go, you get like this VIP. You just walk up to the front all the time. Look, I'm not staying in the line. You probably wouldn't survive. You'd get killed. You'd get killed. No, no, no. It's just like- People would kill you. No, that's not true. It's like when you go to Disney World or whatever, you have like the speed pass, and so you got the people that stay in the line, those people that get to pass them up. You look, I'm going, I wish I was that person. You don't want to kill them. You like want to be them. I want to be that person that I just walk up and go straight to the front of the line and go- I would like a tuna melt or whatever it is. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what it is. Front of sure. the line. That's me. Okay. Again, that was an easy one. Yes. No question. Yeah, that was an easy one. If you said red light, you lose. Yeah, you're, you're done. So, all right. So there you go. Another amazing show completed and in the books. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Thank you for being with us today for episode 67, Ask the Show. We would like to thank our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. If you liked today's episode, please take the next 15 seconds and head over to your favorite podcast listening app and hit that subscribe button so you can get funky snow fresh new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks. While you're there, please consider leaving us a comment, and I would greatly appreciate it if you leave us a five-star, let-me-ask-you-a-question rating. Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, info, and photos from this wondrous episode. Thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. Cheers.